Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hi, my name is Jamie. Um, My family was old friends with Marsha Ferber, and we heard, um, I don't know, maybe you were with her. Um, Maybe you were friends with her. So we just wanted to ask you a few questions. Um, Thank you. Bye. God, it makes me so nervous calling people like this. Let's see. Should I try another number? Whew. I hate this part, true crime part. Marcia disappeared on April 25th, 1988. And the first step to finding out what the hell happened to her is getting a clear picture of what the hell happened in the days surrounding the disappearance. So even though that means stepping out of my comfort zone, that's where we're going to start. I'm Jamie Zellermeyer. And I'm Karen Zellermeyer. This is I Was Never There, Episode 2. I hear a voice in the morning as she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling like I should have been home yesterday. Yesterday. The last time I saw Marcia was April 5, 1988. At the time, the kids and I were living on the Lower East Side in New York City. She was living in Morgantown. We met in Baltimore to celebrate our birthdays. I was turning 39, she was turning 47. Baltimore was a midpoint between us, and it was where our friend D.L. lived. All right, so D.L., you want to introduce yourself and tell us when you first met Marcia and how? Well, no, but I guess that's why I'm on here. (laughs) This is D.L. That stands for Deborah Lynn, and I'm, I guess I was D.L. back in... The 80s, so... I've known D.L. for more than 40 years. She's one of my dearest friends. And, like Marcia, she's been another mother figure in Jamie's and her sister Sarah's life. When we started this project, D.L. was the first person we went to. We knew we couldn't do this without her. And Marcia was a major influence in her life, too. I was sort of a hippie wannabe, but I didn't get bona fide until the whole co-op, Ram Dass, Grateful Dead, you know. 
It's funny though. made me a hippie, a real hippie. <laughs> DL is a native West Virginian. She's funny, loud, spiritual, and spirited. We love her, and so did Marcia. They met at the Morgantown Food Co-op during what DL calls the Great Sugar Debate. Marcia was fighting to keep the co-op sugar-free. Marcia and I both wanted our bodies to be our temples, but, you know, we didn't treat them as such. <laughs> DL and Marcia became fast friends, and eventually, DL helped her purchase the two music venues that Marcia owned and ran, a bar called the Underground Railroad and an alcohol-free space for minors called the Dry House. On top of that, Marcia owned one communal living house, Earth House One, and managed another, Earth House Two. And, of course, she was always selling pot. That first weekend in April, Marcia was cooking up a plan to move to Florida and start our hippie retirement community. We were going to grow old together. She was definitely disenchanted and talking about moving on, and, I mean, she was over it. What was she over? Morgantown. Morgantown is a big part of this story. So we want you to have a feel for the place. To draw that picture, DL recommended we reach out to Michael Tomoski. Michael grew up in Morgantown. Today, he lives in D.C. and is a journalist and the editor of The New Republic. He loves Morgantown and is a student of its history. He also plays guitar in a band called The Social Demons. Back in the day, they were a big part of the music scene at the underground. Can you um, tell us, give us like a physical description of Morgantown? Sure. Let's see. That's a fun assignment. Morgantown is a big, small town or a small, big town, depending on how you like to think about these things. And it sits along the river that flows north to Pittsburgh. Not many rivers flow north. And it's very hilly and it's very defined by its topography and geography and was very insular, like a lot of other places in West Virginia, until they finally started building interstate highways, which didn't happen there until the 1970s. When I was six years old, I moved to Morgantown with my dad. My parents had separated. My mom came out as a lesbian, and my dad decided to go to law school. I went with my dad, and my three-year-old sister stayed with my mom on the farm. Sarah and I ended up moving to Morgantown a year later. Compared to our farm, which was 70 miles to the south, Morgantown felt really urban to us, more like a city. It had movie theaters and the university, a big medical center and restaurants. It also had a progressive community, so we didn't feel so isolated or like outsiders. Yeah, the Morgantown of that time was full of a lot of people who came there to go to college in the late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, never quite finished and never quite left. <laughs> the cultural revolution that hit the country in the late 1960s you know, didn't skip Morgantown. When people think of student unrest, they think of Columbia and they think of you know Berkeley and, and so on, but it, it happened everywhere. But while we lived there, the state was becoming more and more conservative. The culture of the state began to change in the 70s and into the 80s when the Southern Baptist Convention started to make a lot of inroads into the state. And I once looked this up. In the 60s, 
and in through the 70s, there were hardly any Southern Baptist churches in the state. And by the 80s, leading into the 90s, there were a few hundred. And so that was a big, big change. Uh, the pro-life movement in the state became really powerful politically through the course of the 1980s, I would say. You know, you had these cultural conservative factors on the rise, and the one anchor that kept the state weighted somewhat to the liberal left side, the union presence, starting to vaporize. Within the context of that conservative shift, Marsha was bold in her efforts to create spaces that were feminist and anti-racist. She named her bar the Underground Railroad, and if that doesn't send a message about her values, I don't know what does. It was a place where everyone, from hippies to punks to queers, could go and be unapologetically themselves. Here's D.L. talking about what the Underground meant to Morgantown. I mean, you know, it, it, it was a melting pot of everything that was diversity in West Virginia. And it, it's what made it safe for everybody. It's what made it radical. It's what made it home for some people. Morgantown was a great place to live, but after a while, I moved on to New York City. I didn't want my kids growing up thinking the world was just white and Christian. And being a dyke in West Virginia wasn't easy. A little later, D.L. also moved. The weekend we met in Baltimore, it sounded like Marcia was ready to leave, too. But a few weeks later, on Saturday, April 23rd, Marcia told D.L. something different. And then my last conversation with her was where she was thinking of staying there because of the Morgan Theater. She was calling me to say I might have changed my mind about moving to Florida. The next day, Sunday, Marcia watched her friend Jack Herbert's flea market booth as a favor. Jack was another really central figure in Marcia's life. Marcia liked to joke that he was her gay husband. We had to have her husband. I was just gonna say. Yes, I had to have her husband, I <laughs> bay. Jack and Marcia were like carbon copies. Describe you know, Marcia. She looked like me, only she was a woman. When Marcia met Jack, he was living in his car in a parking lot next to the underground. Marcia owned the whole building, so when the apartment underneath hers became available, she told Jack, just move in here. Did she charge you rent? Did you pay rent? Hell no. No, you didn't pay rent at the end. You know, no. <laughs> so that Sunday, Marsha was watching Jack's space at the flea market while he went to New York City for the weekend. Sotheby's auction house was going to be open on a Sunday because it was the final day of Andy Warhol's auction. Well, I wanted to go to that auction. So I asked Marcia if she would watch my space at the flea market for that Sunday. And I came home, she wasn't here. And that's the day she did, that was the day she disappeared. So the 25th was on a Monday. So it would have been the 24th was the- Auction. Yeah, and I came home Monday. And she was gone. And she was gone. Right. Yeah, she was gone. And on Monday, she saw Michelle. Michelle Wolford was the manager of the Dry House. She also helped book musical acts for the underground. 
She died in 2016, so we didn't get to speak with her. But fortunately, our friend Larry interviewed her prior to her death. Marsha's bars became Michelle's life. Initially, it was a job. You know, I needed a job. It was work. And, and it, became, it became home. I mean, it, you know, it, it wasn't any idealistic thing that, that brought me here. It just became that. Many days, Michelle would start work in the office on the floor above the bar at 9 in the morning and stay until 3 a.m. the next day. On that Monday morning, Marsha came downstairs to work. She said, hey, I want to take the afternoon off. So, all right. I said, yeah, you're not doing anything anyway. And that's the last time I saw her. According to Michelle, Marsha left on Monday afternoon around 1 o'clock. On Tuesday morning, no one had heard from her. But that wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary. Well, I don't remember thinking the next morning, oh, my God, where is she? I mean, I don't, until her friends started calling me, asking me if I knew where she was, it was not apparent to me that she had disappeared. She just wasn't at work. You know, I mean, it would not have been unusual for her to be in her apartment, and I wouldn't even have known, you know. I think most people here thought, you know, it's Marcia. She'll show up when she shows up. And I remember, I think that week, pretty sure Firehose was playing that week, and she liked them too. Marcia loved Firehose, and she didn't like missing out-of-town bands when they were playing at the underground. But Firehose came, and Marcia did not show up. So that was kind of like, okay, she's not here for this. Something's wrong. Michelle called DL to ask, have you heard from Marcia? And DL started calling around and asking other people, including me. But no one had heard from her. So now DL's starting to get really worried, and she drives to Morgantown. There was a point where I just felt numb, where I thought she really is gone. I sat on some little bench and, and, and just kind of froze. I mean, I just sat by myself in the dark, in the bar, for however long it was, just frozen that this was happening. And the biggest concern was, do we get the police involved? It was a tough call. There was a policy at the bar that you didn't call the police for anything. They often only escalated the situation. The decision was further complicated by the fact that some people thought Marcia was really missing and the police needed to know, while others thought that she had just left and nothing needed to be done. Like Jack. Marcia had told me, and I don't remember the, the time element, maybe two months, three months before that, that I might come home and be able to tell that she had just left and left everything open, you know, and everything would be just, she just left. And just to watch out for that. But she said but she, she told would be gone. Yeah, she surmised this. No, she told me that. And she said she would be gone for a week or two at the most. And when she got home, she would have enough money with her to make us all comfortable for the rest of our lives. That's what you assumed happened, though, when you came home. Yeah, it was that, oh, she's doing her thing, yeah. And Jack had reasons to believe that. You know, she had money under her waterbed. 
Oh, she had a water bed. Uh-huh. Yeah, she had a water yeah, bed, and then and then that's what what got me was that's what kind of told me that it wasn't a unplanned event that her being missing happened. It takes a couple of days to empty a water bed with a garden hose. You're saying she emptied her waterbed and put money in the waterbed. No, there was she would put her hundred dollar bills under her mattress. But you have to empty the waterbed to do to that? get it out. Oh, to oh, I see, because you can't lift up the bed. But that's the only thing I know is the bed was not stabbed, so it wasn't. She was not pulled or forced out of her environment. You know, she she chose. She chose to leave. She knew she was leaving. Then, six days passed with still no word from Marcia. So Michelle took action. I think DL and possibly Jack Herbert and I went to the Morgantown Police Department. So we went down and talked to Detective Ralph Boyce. And... You know, he asked us about her movements, her habits, her friends, or, you know, do we have any idea where she would have gone? Do, you know, and basically all that I remember is, is just thinking, you know, her, her backpack is here, her makeup is here, her car keys are here, her car is here. Um, you know, I don't know what to tell you, buddy. She's not here. All those things should have been with her. Her leather jacket, you know. Those were all things that she would have taken with her. So the police had already talked to the man whose name I cannot recall, who Marcia had left with that afternoon. He was in the office with her when she asked me if she could take the afternoon off. And Detective Boyce had information from him that he had dropped Marcia off at her apartment door. Michelle's talking about Gary Perkins. My mom and her friends figured out pretty quickly that Marcia had spent Monday afternoon with Gary. But none of them really knew him. What they did know was that Marcia had met him in the early 80s at the Kennedy Center, a minimum security men's prison in Morgantown. Gary was an inmate, he had gotten busted for dealing cocaine, and Marcia was volunteering there with Jewish prisoners. As far as we know, Gary was the last person to see Marcia. And we knew where he was, and we, and there were, there were some machismo people within this that they would have gone rough and up type of thing, versus people who were being very nonchalant or oh, there's nothing wrong, she'll be back. You all are worried about nothing. So there was a lot of disagreement on both what was going on and how we should address it. They never ended up talking to Gary, but we wanted to. We wanted to know where Gary went with Marsha, who else they saw, what they did together. But first, we had to track Gary down. And even if we found him, Marsha disappeared 34 years ago. Asking anyone to remember exactly what they did on a specific day that long ago seems ridiculous. Sometimes it's hard for me to remember exactly what I did last week. We really needed someone who could help. Lucky for us, we found P.J. Scott, Morgantown's deputy chief of police. Hi, how are you doing? Good. It's been a while since 
We've seen each other. We talk every week now. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> BFFs, huh? <laughs> Come on, PJ. We're going to solve this thing. That'd be awesome. PJ is a Morgantown local. He's known about this case since he was a teenager. And so how did you um, become familiar with the Marsha Ferber case? I'd been familiar with it since probably around the time it happened. My father was a police officer here. He started in the mid 80s and transitioned and actually worked in the same position I'm in now. So I'd heard it spoken of when it happened. And then when I got back in here, I kind of took a look at all the uh, cold cases we had had and kind of kind of did basically a triage of, you know, what we could, which cases were promising and it had leads. And Marsh's was in there with some of the other cold cases. In my early days as a junior detective, PJ became our go-to guy. As I tried to wrap my head around how to approach true crime, I would call him and explain all the leads I thought we had. And then he would shoot them all down one by one. But PJ also gave us a bunch of new leads in the form of assets from the investigation, including a recording of Gary's statement. I'm ready. You ready? following is a taped verbal voluntary statement given by Gary Hamilton Perkins. Statement is being given in reference to an investigation of a missing persons, a Marsha Ferber. Uh, can you tell us of your contacts with her shortly before her disappearance? Okay. After I made my phone call setting up the time, drove down to Morgantown to show her some listings that she inquired about in, you know, in the Florida area. Uh, and that was my main objective going down there. At that time, she also wanted to show me the theater. Monday morning, uh, I ate at the Blue, I'm pretty sure it's called the Blue Ribbon. It's a restaurant right next to the underground. And then I went up to her office. She was doing some business up there with some other people. We left from there approximately noontime or a little after uh, to an apartment complex in Morgantown. After we left the apartment complex, we went straight to the Sheridan uh, in greater Pittsburgh area, uh, which is off the Turnpike 79. Uh, she was waiting for somebody there, from what I understood. The police got receipts from that Pittsburgh dinner. One New York strip and one chicken parmesan. And the police talked to the waiter who had served them. According to him, Marsha looked tired and Gary looked spaced out. Because Gary was the last person to be seen with Marsha, it made him a prime suspect to the police. Gary was number one there for a long time and then... I just it keeps getting me off Gary is why would he, I don't know why he would, if he was involved in anything at all, why he would ever say anything like he was with her or anything. He could have just said, you know, I left town. I need to take her to Pittsburgh. What he did give up that could be corroborated was corroborated. Like we had dinner here. We ate this, we did this. I mean, why even go to that far? If you're, if you're going to, if you were involved in it, I think you just said, you know, I don't remember where we ate. I don't remember where we went, especially with a lawyer there. If he, if he says, you know, I was involved in this. Lawyers going to say we're not interviewing, we're not saying anything because they don't. The police don't have anything. They don't give them anything to start working on. I mean, honestly, 
I'm surprised the police seemed to think that Gary exonerated himself from any involvement. His statement left me with a lot of questions. Who did they go see in that apartment complex? Did he really not know who Marcia was meeting that day in Pittsburgh? I find that hard to believe. And how do we know that he dropped her off at her apartment because he said so? No one saw her. And he refused to take a lie detector test. Again, it's hard to get a real feel on him without meeting him in person, talking to him in person. So we reached out to Gary ourselves. So what happened? (laughs) Are we recording? I am recording, yes. Okay. So he left me a message saying, I want nothing to do with this. Never call me again. I've only had grief from this. Fortunately, I did not listen to his voicemail. I just saw that he called me and I called him right back. And I asked if we could interview him and he said, absolutely not. But then I couldn't stop him from talking. And he was an absolute sweetheart by the end. Gary did not want to be interviewed. He said he didn't want the negativity in his life. He did talk to me, though, for almost two hours about Marcia and how much he loved her and how they met at the Kennedy Center. But in that whole call, if he knew anything, he did not reveal it to me. It's a long call. <laughs> Draining. <laughs> well, you've done good. You've done good, Mom. In addition to Gary's witness statement, PJ also gave us a full police report. 16 pages of notes taken by Detective Voice, now deceased, who was the lead on the case. So on May 1st, 1988, Officer Cress of the Morgantown Police Department took a missing person report from Jack Herbert at 123 Pleasant Street. Mr. Herbert told Officer Cress that his housemate, Marcia Ferber, had not been seen or heard from since Monday, April 25th, 1988. The more we read, the more leads we Mr. found. Honestly, reading this report was like listening to a game of telephone. Detective Boyce followed up on a tip that Marsha Bowden, Bowden is Marsha Ferber's maiden name, was staying at the Comfort Inn. There were cassette tapes of Marsha talking with a psychic. These tapes were stolen out of somebody's car after the disappearance. To look for Miss Ferber in the basement of the Met. Detective Boyce confirmed that there was a Marsha Everyone in Morgantown had a theory about Marsha's disappearance. And it's hard to tell if any of them are true. The police were talking to the people in Marsha's circle, many of whom either sold drugs or used them. They had pretty good reason not to tell the police the entire truth. But there is one other person who emerges as a prime suspect. Dale Hamilton advised Detective Boyce that $5,000 was transferred from the Randy Williams Underground Railroad checking account into a savings account on April 4th and that the transaction was not reflected in the checkbook which Ms. Ferber kept. Randy Williams was Marsha's boyfriend for five years and was her business partner at the Underground. He and Marsha had been going through a rough breakup. He was part of the reason that Marsha was thinking about moving on from Morgantown. 
A few weeks before Marsh's disappearance, Randy had moved $5,000 from the underground savings account into a savings account in his name. And then, on April 27th, two days after Marsh's disappearance, he redeposited $1,500 of it into the underground account to cover the mortgage. The police found these actions suspicious. Detective Boyce contacted Randy Williams and set up an interview for the following day, June 1st. On June 1st, Detective Boyce interviewed Randy Williams, stated that he was a shareholder in the Underground Railroad, 20 shares, and that he had known Miss Ferber for five years. Mr. Williams stated that he did not know where Miss Ferber was or anyone who did know where she was. Mr. Williams stated that he had last seen Miss Ferber at 3.30 in the morning on April 24th. Besides Gary... Randy was the only other person that the police seemed to really suspect. Which makes sense. He did take money out of the underground account. Heading to Randy's. Walk down a long dirt road. Gravel road. Gravel road. Am I getting close? Uh, a little bit. Point two miles. Okay. I was just yeah, thinking, here. I want to know how he got the name Squeak. When Marcia started hanging around with Randy, none of us knew him. All I knew about him was that he was this tall, skinny biker dude who sat at the end of the bar drinking beer. His friends called him Squeak. Honestly, their relationship was always confusing. Why was Marcia hanging with this guy 12 years younger than her? And why did she make him a partner in the bar? That seemed really odd. And then, right after Marsha's disappearance, Randy took the actual physical bar out of the underground, which made a lot of people angry at him, especially D.L. What right did this guy have to mess with Marsha's legacy? This is out there. Oh, boy. Red house. Motorcycle. A hog. There's squeak. There's squeak. Hello. When I met Randy again after all these years, I realized he's a really nice guy. Sort of shy, humble, quiet, and an artist. I have a very important question before we get into anything. Where's the nickname Squeak come from? When I was in the Boy Scouts, I was 11 and my voice was changing. Is that right? And it's hung all all these years? I love that. So maybe we could start a little bit at the beginning just to get um, that beginning story because it is such a great story. Yeah. Um, you know, the pickup. The pickup the pick line. <laughs> yeah, it was out in front of uh, what was to become Underground Railroad, but she hadn't taken over quite yet. She's in the process. And my bike was parked there. She said, nice motorcycle. And that... That did it, and our relationship started. <laughs> Randy explained why he had taken the money from the account. You know, I don't have any money here, and I never really took any. I, I was never paid down there. I mean, I would get tip money and, you know, a little bit of money here and there, but, you know, I was basically a volunteer when she disappeared. I just, what the money that was left over, I just took it out. said, oh, man, you know, I don't have any money. I did put, I think, next month's rent back in. I was was feeling guilty. It's like, well, I better put some money back in there, you know. 
And he also explained why he took the bar from the underground. Do you have the bar here? We hear a rumor that you Yeah, have I have the bar. the bar. It's not here. Oh. It's in town there. And I was just at it this, this past week. And a small group of us is great. I, we sat there and at the bar. <laughs> is it being used as a bar? Yeah, just our personal a person- bar, uh-huh. though. Uh-huh. The new owner of the underground was going to throw the bar out. Randy helped save it. He put it in his garage along with photos of Marsha and other underground memorabilia so that now a part of the bar lives on. He's got this space where people can come and sit and drink and remember Marsha. Oh, so that's yeah. fun. Yeah, it is How does fun. It, feel when you're sitting there? it feels great. <laughs> Other than the statements from Gary and Randy, the police notes left us with more questions than answers. Lots of folks we wanted to speak to, and not much we could corroborate. Until we read this. And then on August 2nd, Detective Boyce received information from, in quotation marks, Robert L. N. U., that Miss Ferber had got $35,000 worth of marijuana from New York the weekend before she disappeared and that she was to meet Perkins to distribute the marijuana. LNU stands for last name unknown. We do know from other folks we've spoken to that Marsha had gotten thirty dollars to $35,000 worth of weed from New York the weekend before she disappeared. We also heard further corroboration from Jack Herbert. That safe story, oh God. Um, Rita came down with two guys and she said, you have a box for me. Rita was another one of Marsha's Kennedy Center connections. She was the mom of one of the inmates that Marsha met while volunteering there. Rita lived in New York and Marsha would regularly drive up to buy weed from her. Shortly after Marsha's disappearance, Rita came down to Morgantown looking for something she thought belonged to her. And I said, what is it? And she said, I don't know, some kind of a uh, heavy iron box. And I knew what it was. I, she said, where's the key? I said, how would I know? I said, I have no idea. I said, that was all Marcia. And so she said, we have to see what's in it. So I went back to the flea market and got a hammer from the booth there and brought it over and beat the bottom of it out because it was cement. The bottom of, of those old safes were cement. So I got, got it out, and there was um, $30,000 and a piece of hash about the size of a half a loaf of bread in it. And she said, thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. No, she's had the balls. Meanwhile, she's, um, she's standing there seeing me beat the thing open. You know, well, if I'd have had the key, I wouldn't have beat the thing open. But, um, <laughs> well, hello. Um, <laughs> but um, she said... Is this all there is? Uh, Hello, it's better than nothing, isn't it? I had no idea what was in there. But if I'd have known, the underground could have used that $30,000 for something. You know, and then screw her and her drug money. You know, I mean, sorry, but that's me. And I could have enjoyed the hash myself. (laughs) So we know that this story in the police report wasn't just a rumor. That seems like it would be a huge lead. But as far as we know, the police never followed up on it. To our knowledge, they didn't ask Gary or anyone else about it. It's one of the few times that drugs are mentioned in the report. Okay, I'm recording. 
another Saturday exciting morning. It's my anniversary. Here I am. All right. So, Jane, what do you think of the police report? <laughs> the police reporting was shoddy. I mean, it was the week and it kind of feels like stereotypical small town police reporting. We know she was selling drugs. I mean, we knew her. Gary Perkins had a record. There's very little surprises, but the surprising thing is that on paper, the police knew nothing of it. So either they were really naive or they really didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Or they didn't want to get involved with these people. Mm -hmm. Or she was working with the police. Mm -hmm. Or she was just like a cute little Jewish woman and nobody wanted to bother her. <laughs> right. I think that was Marsha's theory why she would always be safe, right? Who would, you know, who would, who would want to bother me? Marsha's drug business wasn't a big part of the police investigation, but it's a big part of ours. And the more we talk to people, the bigger the connection becomes. I, I would say, given my uh, hesitancy of going to the police, I was simply relieved that it was not a part of the investigation. And what do you think now? Well, now I don't even know what to believe. I Was Never There is a Wonder Media Network production. It's hosted by me, Jamie Zellermeyer, and my mom, Karen, and it's based on our lives. It's produced by Allie Wollner, Lindsay Cradwell, Adesua Agbenile, and Liz Smith. It's edited by Jenny Kaplan and Liz Smith. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan, Jamie Zellermeyer, and Karen Zellermeyer. Production assistance by Alessandra Tejeda. Our music supervisor is Sarah Tembekjian. The theme music is Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver, performed by Brandy Carlisle. Special thanks to Larry Dowling for allowing us to use his interview with Michelle Wolford. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love your help in getting the word out. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help others discover I Was Never There.